It's such a joy to be able to join you this morning, if only online. I am missing that physically embodied sense of being together, but praise God for technology that makes it possible to join with one another, uh, even in this way. Thank you for the invitation to speak. I'm looking forward to talking through some deep themes uh, together this morning, but let me start with something a little more lighthearted. I was walking through the city centre of Oxford with my son a little while ago. He was around three at the time, and he was going through this phase where it seemed no matter what I did, he would manage to wriggle his little hand out of mine and just make a mad dash to whatever the latest thing was that had suddenly caught his attention. It was pretty stressful around roads. And on this uh, beautiful sunny day in the middle of Oxford, he suddenly looked up at me, his eyes full of wonder and joy, but with absolute seriousness, and said, Mummy, did you know my body can stop cars? Words you do not want to hear from your three-year-old boy. Um, let's just say that he'd taken on a little too wholeheartedly his interactions with stories of superheroes, and it may have led to a slight overconfidence in his own physical abilities. In fact, for the longest time, his most overused phrase in equal measure, absolutely delightful and utterly terrifying, was the phrase, I can easily do that. It took me quite some time to convince him that the scene would not play out quite as he envisaged it in his head. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more aware of my limitations, the more aware of suffering and injustice all over the world, the more of aware of complexity, the more aware of the sheer scale of the need, I find myself less and less able to say, I can easily do that. And this talk is really a reflection born out of a global cultural moment, the increasing awareness of our limitations alongside increasing awareness of massive need. And I want to speak against that backdrop to the question of power, human powerlessness, and how I believe we're standing at a profound moment of awakening to the reality of who we are and of our limits the power of God, and why it is that that seemingly hard, that kind of cold concept is a comfort and a strength, and finally and ultimately, what it might look like to lead an empowered life. And I'll speak to three headings, awakening, encountering, empowering. Awakening, encountering, empowering. And I've called this session True Power and the Goodness of God. Firstly, awakening. In February of this year, just nine, it's hard to believe it's nine short months, but seemingly an age ago, and just weeks before much of the world went into lockdown, Jonas Thiegel and David Axelson released the song, We Are Gods. Let me give you some of the lyrics. One way to heaven, one way to hell, Mankind's salvation only time will tell. Many men believe the tales, they all fall in line, but there are many among us who believe in the truth. We are gods. We are gods of the universe. Stand up, get up, get on your feet. We're not going to make belief because we are gods. One man to save us, one world enslaved indoctrination from cradle to grave. Many men believe the tales, they all fall in line, but there are many among us who believe in the truth. We are gods. We are, we are, we are the gods. We are, we are, we are the gods. We are gods of the universe. We are gods. We are gods. What an irony 
what a mismatch those lyrics are as we look across the sheer powerlessness of human experience that has been our lived reality these past months. We're living out an isolation that would have seemed the make-believe of dystopian movies as we're forced to face our own mortality. But it's more than that, actually. It's more than the extremes even of life and death. I've been wondering whether our relative successes, our relative wealth here in the West, have meant that we've been prone to suffer from an illusion that's not shared by all societies, the illusion of power, the illusion of control, working faster, harder, longer, just about keeping up. But the wheels are beginning to come off. And I've begun to wonder whether it might be much truer to the reality that if we're really honest with ourselves, that if we look at our lives unfiltered, despite all the noise to the contrary and the pretense of our outwardly perfect lives, whether it might actually be the case that intrinsic to being human is an incredible sense of powerlessness. We seem to be utterly powerless when it matters to us the most. Bereavement, sickness, loss, anxiety and depression, the epidemics of our generation, injustice, oppression, conflict, strife, maybe children who have gone away from us in one way or another and we can't win them back. Powerless when it matters to us the most. How can we regain control? Will it be in running faster that we get there? Will it be in working harder? Or can we bear, do we dare to face a deeper truth about our limitations, a deeper reality? I wonder if you think of yourself as a powerful person. For myself, I found that the feeling of powerlessness repels like two magnets in force, even the smallest glimpses of the reality of the magnitude of the need and our own limits and overcoming or affecting the changes we would so dearly love to see leaves us overwhelmed, crushed, wanting to look away. Every defense mechanism kicks in to minimize and sanitize the experience. It's like putting ourselves into a self-induced emotional coma to dull any sense of pain or need or powerlessness. We seem not to be able to cope with it. Andrew Russo, father of eight-year-old Safi Russo, was the youngest victim of the Manchester bombing. Speaking at the one-year anniversary of that event, said the biggest worry since this happened is dreading time passing. You start to forget bits and I dread that. I dread the thought two, three, four years time for Safi's life to be remembered as a two-minute silence. How profound the human propensity to anesthetize, to forget, even in the processes of the rituals of remembering. There is an overwhelming pull to live in sanitized versions of reality. And I find myself standing on the scorching ground of true reality in all its messiness and its untamable brokenness and asking the question, how is it possible 
to actually live here? How is it possible to truly face the reality of oppression, of loss, of our own mortality? How is it possible to face the limits of who we are and our, our own powerlessness? How is it possible to really understand that we are not in control of our lives and that we never will be and not be paralyzed, crushed, overwhelmed and broken by the experience? You may be aware that Pretty much every social study done in the past months has shown a sudden spike in interest of things of faith and spirituality. I wonder whether what we're witnessing is a profound but most fragile of cultural moments, standing on the edge of an uncomfortable awakening. We have, for a long time, lived with a false confidence. These last blows have brought with them the offer, the possibility at least, however fleeting, however fragile, to dare to face the reality of who we really are and of our limits. In short, we're seeing the smallest of glimpses, the smallest of recognitions that we are not gods after all. Awakening. And that one recognition, that one moment of reckoning brings with it possibility. We're entering the liminal space, the threshold, a place of transition, life between chapters. Because at the very moment that we come to the realization that we are not gods after all, however subtly, however subconsciously that belief has been held, obviously no one actually says that to themselves, but we live like that all the time. At the very moment that we come to the realization that we are not gods, after all, we find ourselves immediately, simultaneously entering the space, the possibility of encountering him who is. Awakening. Secondly, encountering. How does God in the picture help us? Or in fact, Surely part of the problem is that God seems conspicuously absent from the picture, even at some of our greatest moments of felt need, like a parent who's abdicated his protective role. Where is God? We might be saying, where is God in all of this? Obviously, I don't know your personal circumstances, but that might have been a question that you've asked even in the past weeks or months. Where is God in all of this? This Morning, I want to look at just three sentences from the ancient poetry of the Psalms and to consider their impact. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. These are the opening lines recorded in Psalm 115. The next verse goes on to say, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And it strikes me that questions of God's absence and the seeming abdication of his power resound throughout the ages. Where is God? Or it's as it's phrased here in this psalm, where is their God? If you look at it closely, it's evident that the question, where is their God, is it's being asked insincerely. It's a taunt. It's 
a jeer. It's intended to mock and belittle the people of God, intended to demonstrate the redundancy of their faith and their beliefs, the impotence of their God. But whatever its motivations, whatever the tone and heart with which it is asked, the question only makes sense if there is, in fact, the seeming absence of God, the seeming absence of the kinds of signs that would draw faith and trust from us, the seeming absence of the power of God at work, the seeming emptiness of his throne. Where is God? The nations are in disarray. There is struggle and strife. There is uncertainty and loss. Where is God? And on first glance, I found the answer that is offered to be utterly jarring. It so widely seems to miss my heart and miss its mark. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Coming to God with our chaos and our pain, and it seems we're being told he's above it all. He's not pulled and pushed about by our emotions or maybe our whims and manipulations. What is going on here? Charles Spurgeon wrote, supreme above all opposing powers, the Lord reigns, albeit he may not work miracles at our beck and call. Once they bade his son come down from the cross that they would believe in him, now they would have got overstepped the bounds of his providence and come down from heaven to convince them. Is it possible a deeper comfort, a deeper peace, a deeper power is being worked out? An attempt is being made to jolt us out of our agendas, out of our insistence that we be in control of the times, that we determine the direction of what ought to happen and will happen, that we determine its moral value, that we be the final arbiters of all that happens on this earth, casting our eye of judgment on it. Is it possible that we're being stunned out of our broken perspectives in the hope of being set free? unburdened, released from the impossibly crushing weight of playing God. We're being reminded we are peripheral. We are dependent. It is God who stands as central. In fact, the opening lines of the psalm read, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, glory, sufficiency, centrality, power, wisdom, This is a declaration against our self-centeredness, a pull away from us in the center, us in the driving seat, us as the judges of all that happens on this earth. It's a call to see God as God and to see ourselves for the created beings that we are. Man's tendency throughout the ages has been to dethrone God with our own image. We're prone to make idols of ourselves with our imaginations, our wishes, our desires, our opinions, our intellects cast in that ultimate role. It might be that for some of us, there is unaddressed disappointment in our lives. Maybe God didn't do what we would have dearly loved for him to do. We've sat maybe even subconsciously as judge and jury over God, and there is now distance and dissonance. Maybe for some of us, we've been through suffering and justice, 
disappointment that runs so deep. The experiences themselves have become God in our lives. The ultimate reality, we use them as the sieve through which we assess and judge the character of God and find him wanting. It's not disappointment itself, frustration, anger even, that's the problem. I was speaking to a dear friend of mine recently and she was talking about, we were both talking about how to parent emotionally healthy children. And she was saying how her and her husband have taken to getting getting on their knees eye level with their little ones whenever they're having one kind of tantrum or another and just saying to them, hey, I'm not afraid of your big emotion. (laughs) And then helping the child resolve whatever that emotion is and come out the other side, ultimately walk through it. Well, guess what? God is not afraid of our big emotions. In fact, the Psalms are full of humans pouring out their emotions to God and encountering him in the mess. But for some of us, Our emotions have become our God. How we feel about something, how we think about something has become the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth about the value and the measure of those events. But it doesn't even take a belief in God to know that our own judgments of our experiences are not always solid ground. Sometimes you desperately want something and heaven shuts the door on it and you're left reeling only to see just a few months, weeks, maybe maybe a few years down the line. But had you gone through that door, it would have been devastating. Other times we're walking a journey that seems so challenging, so difficult, so disappointing, only to see with the passage of time how that one road led to all the others that have led to flourishing. Our emotions, our judgments, They are valid, they're important, they're appropriate. But they fail us when they are made ultimate truths. This is not a question of denying our emotions. This is a question about absolutes. What will your foundation be? What will your ultimate reality be? I guess I'm asking this morning, what will your God be? be? Can you bear the weight of playing that role? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. To him be the glory. We're being invited to reorder our perspective to God as God. Far from God is a projection made in our image. It is We, marred as we are in our brokenness, who were made in the image of God. He stands as the sun in the center of our solar system. But this answer, God is central, God is sovereign. He's above it all. He reigns. He does not answer to our agendas. This answer is surely crushing if you're standing amidst turmoil and looking with bewilderment and pain across the globe. Where is God? This is a softer question now, seeking, asking, looking, wanting to find. And the question that occurs to me is, why is this reordering of our perspective to the reality of God? Why is his power, his control, his sovereignty a positive thing as we stand face to face with brokenness and voice that deepest of cries? Where is God? And the answer lies almost hidden in the poem. It's so very easy to miss. Not to us, Lord, 
not to us, but to your name be the glory. The sentence doesn't end there. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. This is the linchpin. You see, it matters very much which God you are talking about when you talk about God in the center. The character of God, the nature of God is absolutely defining of everything else. Who is the God that stands in the center of your story? The Christian's answer to that question is bewildering, impossible to understand in its full force and power. The broken, bloodied, mangled body of Jesus Christ, God on the cross, God shouldering our suffering for us, God bringing justice for us, God paying the penalty for us, stepping not just into our shoes, but into our skin, God demonstrating his love for us, God laying down his life for us. When we look at the power of God, the glory of God, it is not cold not unfeeling, not crushing. It is a solid rock in the midst of a storm on which we can stand and be steadied, held, secure, because you cannot detach the love and faithfulness of God from his power and glory. And equally, you cannot detach his power and glory from his love and faithfulness because three days after the cross of Christ stands the empty tomb resurrection. The offer is not simply empathy, but victory. The cross shows us the love of God, his empathy, his willingness to step into our mess and take on our brokenness. The resurrection shows us that God has the power to do what he has promised to do, that one day all evil and suffering and sighing and sadness will be defeated and overcome and the people of God will get to live with God forever in his glory and love. When we're standing in the midst of suffering and loss and struggles, we stand with so many questions. What, when, how, why, why? The answer being offered in the Bible is not ultimately a what, a when, a how, or a why. It's a who. God himself that's being offered to us as a response. Relationship with God, connection, encounter with God. I don't know how many of you will be familiar with Milton Jones. He's a British comedian, one of my favorite comedians. <coughs> he said, when you discover that the answer to life's biggest question is a person, then all subsequent questions can be put into the file to be discussed. <laughs> But that answer only has its impact if you know him. Hoskins puts it like this as he talks about the context of suffering and struggle. <clears throat> Christians do not say to God, I do not understand you at all, but I trust you anyway. That would be suicidal. <laughs> Rather, they say, Father, I do not understand you in this situation but I understand why I trust you anyway. It is therefore reasonable to trust even when we do not understand. 
we may be in the dark at times about what God is doing, but we are not in the dark about God. Are you in the light about God? You may be familiar with the painting Light of the World by Holman Hunt. It hangs just a short walk from where I'm speaking to you in the middle of Oxford. It's named after the verse in John 8. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But the painting actually depicts a different scene. The image cast by the words of Jesus from the book of Revelation, where he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person friendship, relationship and they with me. The title is of light, but the imagery is of encountering, encountering, (laughs) awakening, encountering, finally empowering. We would be mistaken in thinking that as we clamber off the little thrones we've made for ourselves and just for a moment reorder our perspective to see God as God, that what we're being invited into is a life of passivity or an embracing of helplessness, let go and let God. We are being invited into God's redemptive story better able to see ourselves for our true significance and worth and to fully play our part. If we've not known the full story with the distorted image of God or in a life without God, if we've mistaken its themes and overarching lines, we might strike lucky and still play a meaningful role. We might see in bits and pieces to make a contribution to the progression of the storyline. We might still have something of the impact and the power we were meant to have, but it will be a dim reflection of what could have been. What does it mean to lead an empowered life? Oftentimes we think of being empowered as being strong, confident in the words of many dictionary definitions, getting control over our lives or of our circumstances. But it's precisely this overarching element of control that we know that by virtue of being human, we are unable to access. There is a second, more nuanced definition, though, which hits at something quite profound. The Oxford English Dictionary writes that to empower someone is to give them authority and power to do something. In other words, not just strong, not just powerful in the abstract or in totality, power given for a purpose. Understanding that purpose is absolutely key to living an empowered life, to live with purpose in its deepest sense and its most meaningful is to intentionally take up the invitation to play your part in the great big story of God's redeeming purposes, to intentionally take up the invitation to play your part in the great big story of God's redeeming purposes, to allow your life to play its God-given role in cultivating, growing, restoring, healing this broken world, in changing and making this world, in moving the story forward. For 
those of us who've been brought up in the church, there is no sacred, secular divide here. Your calling, your God-given role might well be in the career that you are following in the world of business and media and academia and arts and service industries and hospitality and the medical profession, wherever God has placed you, purpose, calling, right in the context of where God has put you to be. But there are some pitfalls here. I was at a youth event some years back, thousands of teenagers wearing t-shirts with the words, I'm a world changer. They're right, of course, in the truest sense, that's exactly what humanity is called to be, world changers. But beware the overreach of the triumphalistic language of our day. We are called to be world changers. That's part of our story. But do not forget that the model of the life of the person who has changed and impacted this world the most, the model of the God in whose image we are made as the model of the cross. This is an upside down power. This is a journey of fits and starts. This is a journey that tells us not to be derailed and discouraged by moments of seeming utter failure or setback, but to persevere, because even in the moments of our greatest, greatest seeming weakness or failure, may be the very moment of God's greatest breakthrough. This is a model of both incredible authority and extreme vulnerability, what Andy Crouch calls the glorious impossible, living with God-given dreams for change and justice, alive to our own limits, but gloriously alive to God's overcoming power as well. I wonder if some of us, the glorious impossible needs to come to life again. For others, it might be that you have grown discouraged because we believe that God-given dreams for justice or flourishing are to be accomplished by individual heroes in their own lifetimes. Maybe you felt God give you dreams or promises about what could be accomplished in and through your life, and those dreams have not come to pass in the way that you had imagined. We have been too strongly shaped by the individualistic culture of our day. God works in community, connection, generations coming together. I'm reminded of Abraham and Moses and Simeon, who saw only the smallest glimpse of the promises of God at work in that day, but he knew in that small glimpse they had glimpsed all. We are part of a great cloud of witnesses and we bring our offering, our connected part. Empowering power given by God for purpose, collective, connected purpose, the redemptive story of God into which all of our individual stories find their true home and their full impact. Awakening, encountering, empowering. Richard Rohr in his book, Breathing Underwater, writes of a culture that appears to be drowning without knowing it. And he goes on to say, but do not despair. The state of the mind of the shipwrecked is perhaps a necessary beginning point for any salvation from such drowning. May it be that even as we reflect on our drowning, we might encounter God, the glorious, powerful, faithful, loving God, 
and in encountering him, find our true purpose and his empowering presence in living it out. True power and the goodness of God. Amen.